Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is John Porch and I'm the editor at the Leaders Performance Institute and I hope you're all staying well. Today's guest is a long-time friend of Leaders, a man whom you may have seen at one of our events or perhaps joined on a Leaders virtual roundtable down the years. It's the Lawn Tennis Association's Louis Cayer. Louis oversees the men's doubles for the LTA. He has coached Team GB at four Olympic Games and Great Britain at numerous Davis Cups. Some of you may even remember that Great Britain won the competition in 2015. And Louis was made an MBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours list for services to tennis. On his watch, British players have won 13 Grand Slam events and the nation currently has more doubles players in the ATP Top 80 than any other country. His experience spans four decades and he first made his name in his native Canada, where he also coached in the Davis Cup and across numerous Olympic Games prior to crossing the Atlantic. When Jamie Murray reached world number one in men's doubles in 2016 with Louis's help, he was merely repeating a feat that Louis achieved with Canada's Grant Connell in 1993. It must also be said that Louis is also a prominent coach educator and has a background in teaching that we touch upon today. Also in our chat, we unpick the unusual coach-athlete dynamic in tennis, where players pay their coaches directly. We discussed how he helped lay the foundations of Great Britain's double success. And I also asked Louis how he ensures he and Great Britain stay at the forefront of doubles tennis. On with the conversation in a moment, but first I wanted to remind you of a few leaders' events coming your way. On Thursday the 24th of February, we have our next webinar, brought to you by our main partners Kaiser. This session is titled Developing the Person and the Practitioner. The confirmed speakers at the moment of recording are Dusty Miller, the Head of People and Culture at British Fencing, and Dara Harris, the Assistant Director of High Performance Operations at the Toronto Blue Jays. Register now at leadersinsport.com performance. The Leaders Performance Institute members amongst you may also be interested in our next virtual roundtable, which is titled The State of Play in Player Development, Opportunities and Challenges. That one's on Tuesday the 8th of March. RSVP now to avoid disappointment. And now, on with the show, where I began by asking Louis how he feels the coaching dynamic in tennis differs compared to other sports. I think tennis is very different. Of course, I don't know all the sports, but I know many to know that most of the time it's not the athlete that pay the salary of the coach. So in tennis, and sometimes you see on TV, like the players yelling at the coach and all this, I think in many other sports, that will be difficult to make that happen. So... If you're very rich, like the Djokovic and Alfeder, that's not a problem. You pay the coach's room and all this. But when you're kind of around 100, very often you share the room with your coach, pay all his meals, all his expenses, and his salary. So it becomes quite a, could be a difficult dynamic to travel, share a room, share everything with your player. And sometimes, you know, tell him that uh, what he's doing is not acceptable, that he has to step up and change his standard because he's paying you. So I don't say it's possible to be quite firm and all this, but on the other hand, it could be quite tricky to do that. So I say that's the most important dynamic. Second dynamic, I think in team sport that if you lose, you're still receiving your salary. But a tennis player, you, you just get paid when you win. So sometimes when you have a, a dry streak, like you go to a tournament, you lose first round, you lose first round, you lose first round, the money doesn't come in, but the expenses remain the same thing, the coach salary the traveling and all this, so the stress, you never know the salary you're going to make during the year. So you cannot, you don't have a contract for three years for that month. If you get injured, no money. If you don't win, no money. 
So it's, it, it presents a dynamic uh, quite a bit different. How do you look for opportunities with such a dynamic? If you are in a position where you are sharing a room with a player, yes, of course, that could be quite difficult. That's very easy to imagine. But are there opportunities for relationship building, for example, so that you can build that rapport with the individual and ultimately become a more effective coach? I think the most important rapport, personally, that I, I look to cultivate with the player, it's I really want the player to feel that I, and it's genuine anyway, I'm not faking it, that I care, that I believe. Because I remember when I was very young, you know, the famous saying, people care what you know when they know that you care. It's stuck in my mind since I'm a young coach. So, but it, like I say, it has to be genuine. Otherwise, they will read through you big time. I have to believe in the player. Like when I start the relationship, I close my eyes. I'm aware of the international standards. If I can see the player being like the best players in the world, I can share my vision and then engaging in a journey to bring him to the top. So believing in the player is a must. If the player feels you care, you believe in them, and they're constantly improving with you, I think that's a, a good combination. Then the fact of having a relationship based mostly just on friendship. I think there's more good and bad on it. Personally, I prefer a relationship based on respect. I don't say that to not be friendly, but I I want to still like sometime know. Or I, I learned when I was a young teacher because I, I teach also in high school, a bit the university and geography, the two tongues. So if I say, okay, now John, you're gonna take your right hand. Now they know that it's the coach speaking. Then not let's tease him or fool around. But if I say, Hey, John, what about the stuff like this? They know like that's a bit more playful tone and that they can do this. I think that the players know the two tones, the tone of the coach and the coach, uh, of the tone of a friendly approach is uh, very important. Otherwise, if they mix up a bit the relationship, it could be difficult. Is it usually the player who approaches the coach to offer them employment? Is that the, the way the dynamic works in tennis? The different level, yes, but at the top, top level, they have agencies, so IMG or very known big company that look to find a coach and negotiate the contract for the top, top, top players. At a different level, like a more junior ITF, yes, sometimes the, a, a player will approach a coach or try to get them on board. And often a federation in the transition phase will offer, like, a, try to help the player to find a coach. So it's a bit both ways. Sometimes if a coach knows there's a good player available, you may approach him or the coach will do that. Now we're in a society where there's a lot of money involved. Very often it's the agent who will look to make that connection possible. And let's talk a little bit about the British double system. What steps have you and the LTA taken to create those foundations? First, there's a philosophy that I helped to install, I think, in Great Britain, is that we have to develop like a three P's, the, the person, you know, the, the person, it has to be happy, we have to be healthy, we have to be sure we don't burn them out or whatever, just, anyway, overall, the person. Uh, but on the court, it's about the performer, head, heart, and legs. We have replaced legs for athlete to be more inclusive. It's word that is more relatable for players instead of saying mental, emotional, and physical. Say, come on, bring your head, uh, your heart was not into it, or, you know, your legs were not. It's, it's easier to talk like this with the players. But if we don't know how to work at the performer level, anything they learn on the tactical skills and technical skills are quite useless. We want to develop a performer and a tennis player. It's quite important because it's it's a change the way we see strategy. Strategy used to be only the game plan to win the match. 
And then the debrief was on the game plan. We, you know, you could have attacked more the back end or you missed too many four. And now we replace it with the objectives to win the match. And the objective are always first the performer. You're going to go and give all out, going to run every ball, you're going to you know, fight every point. And then there's also a little game plan. But the first debrief is on the performer. So very soon, like the players I work with, if they didn't fight each point, if they didn't focus, if the performer was not really engaged, even if I have the video of the match or all the stats of the match, we don't go through the match. I say, we're going to start to work on the tennis player when the performer is there. When you're ready to step out there and fight each point from the beginning to the end and engage yourself with your head, heart, and legs on every point, then we'll work with the tennis players and then we're going to make giant strides. And they, they believe me. And after a while, you install that culture of a peak performance state. I understand you cannot always peak perform, but you have to be optimized the chance to be in a peak performance state with high positive energy. If you develop that with your players, your chance that they maximize their level is higher. And then if they maximize their potential, then the chance to be highly ranked is quite achieved. So I think that's first and foremost. On the player side, we have a philosophy of it's not us about winning, making great shots, it's about us making people lose. So we have a lot of strategy based on the positioning to force them to do low, percent, low percentage shots. So if they try always shots that are difficult to do because of how we position, then they may miss a lot and then they can get angry, upset, tight. And we create a lot of uncertainty. We coach more than pretty much any other teams uh, on serve, on returns, during rallies. We uh, try to be unpredictable, never make the same play. And what we want to achieve with that is to create uncertainty, which could lead to anxiety for the opponent, like being a bit anxious, worry about happening, which create muscle tension, which affect coordination, which make them miss a lot. So our game is to make them miss a lot, to a low percentage shot and create a lot of uncertainty. That is important because a lot of the players that I start to work were not previous past singles players. And then have like an Andy Murray recycling into doubles because if you recycle into doubles, it will be top of the game. So I had quite marginal players. And to bring them to the top of the game, we had to have a very clear philosophy. And it was not about us kicking the opponent out of the court to aces and brilliant return and winners. It was to have a very clear philosophy on how we're going to achieve to win these matches. And it has worked uh, quite well. Right now we're a leading country and with the number of doubles players in the top 100. You were able to chart your progress and you were able to demonstrate that you were being successful with this adapted approach. Yes, exactly. Because when I arrived for the LTA, I was asked by the CEO to bring, a, the objective was to bring more players in the top 100 at that time. He asked me to bring two players in the top 100 as there was none since 2000. I arrived in the country in 2007. So for the last seven years, there was not a top 100 players. And since I arrived, I think we had like 15 or 16 and many, uh, and Jamie Marie achieved number one in 2016. And now Joel Salisbury finished number two team for the last two years. And we win slam, we won, I don't know, 13 slam, which was not happening before. So it, the, the results are very encouraging and I've uh, quite promote the approach because the, the concept of the performer, because of the success achieved uh, with the doubles, has been now uh, spread out through all the culture of British tennis, through the regional tennis center, to the junior academy, to the singles. So now it's a common language for a tennis coach and 
that is to say how the performer was that there or even like the junior i'm a consultant at the junior academy national academy in lovra and the players overall they will say oh my serve abandoned me my serve desert me and now say at the end of the set i get a bit nervous and tight and i stop putting a lot of first serve so they can start to assume responsibility for what, instead of being a victim was never them, you know, like the source of the, the issue. Now they, they understand much more. Or some of the players I coach, Louis Dunbar, making an analysis of the match. The performer was not there today. He's very sorry. Next tournament, I'll be better. So they're there. They can really distinguish that it's not when they lose, it's not just about their technique or their tactics. It's about who they are and what they brought to the match. And that's, I think, is very important. And perhaps you could outline for me your approach to coaching, particularly doubles tennis, because sometimes you're going to be talking to one player. Sometimes you will be talking to two, maybe even more. I, th- I think every team, it's like even a relationship, like a marriage. Uh, I see three people. I see the do side player that I have to talk to, the add side player that I have to talk to, and the team. So I have to help you, let's say I coach you, John, to peak perform and maximize with your game style what you're going to do on the court. I have to do the same thing with your partner. And then I have to show how you as a team, you will combine and maximize uh, the match against your opponents, which again, when I scout, I scout like three. I scout the two side player, I scout the outside player, and I scout the team, how they merge together and how they win points and stuff. So I think I have to always think like the third person my relation, my reason, like to a wedding, same thing. No, yeah, you, you have to work for you yourself, and also you have to do things for the couple itself. So a lot of the coaching is is around these three things, and I think one thing that makes uh, my coaching successful is about the team. I think uh, it's easy to coach, let's say John, uh, John in 04 and do that, and coach Paul, but to really make the team the most important thing. And to regardless happen, to stay high positive energy, to respect your partner, because your partner should not at any time feels that you're falling apart, that you're going to tank or you're you're not in a good mood to always project that high positive energy. It's about selling a team and not just selling two individuals playing together. Even if doubles is the smallest team possible, I think in rugby or whatever sport, I think it's easy to sell a concept of team because you're many. But to sell very strongly the concept of team when there are only two, it's not as easy or simple as people may think because uh, very often they have all played singles before, which is very highly individual. And then they suddenly start to play doubles and they have to buy into the culture of a team. And what are some of your key considerations when it comes to giving feedback? Is it a question of timing? <clears throat> is it a question of the choice of words? Is it even about asking the right questions rather than providing the right answers? How does that look? There's several things like you just mentioned, but uh, the two first that comes into my mind, I'm, I'm a good praiser. And there's a difference between flattery and praising. If I say, oh, John, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. You're so good. But you're so good at what? So I like to praise because if I say, I really like the way, you know, you, you fight each point, you run every ball until the second bounce. If I praise some specific behavior, there's it's most likely that it's going to happen again. So I'm quite good at catching you doing something good and letting you know. And matter of fact, the word feedback replaced correction. So I've been a course educator for many years. 
for many years, <laughs> I think for over 49 years. And I remember it was a culture of a correction. We talk only when we see something bad. So let's say, okay, watch out, John. Don't take a backswing. Don't take a backswing. And now if it was something you learn, I will praise you. Hey, John, that's the way. That's the way. It's so good to keep your head in front, you know? But if it's not a praise, if you don't do it well, you take a backswing. I will not say, John, uh, you're taking a backswing. I will encourage. I say, come on, John, you can keep your head in front. Come on, let's go. Keep your racket in front. So I will either praise when you do it very well, or I will encourage you by stating the solution, which if you start to play bad, you will talk to yourself the way the coach talked to you. So you will say, come on, John, keep your head in front. You will state the solution. So I'm not the problem dweller. I'm always a solution seeker. Now, when it's for a skill like this, praise encouragement, but sometimes the feedback comes through like uh, some self-reflection because sometimes you will say, you know, like when we look at a video, I will ask them, to, what do you see? What do you think? What about this? What about that? Which is another type of feedback. But for me, it's more like about coaching at that point. So, okay, I'll, I'll share with you three words that I like to use. Inform, form, and transform. I like it because they have the same word form in it. So inform is to give him knowledge. When I want to form, which are new habits, new competency, I like to praise and I like to encourage the habits, behavior that I want more permanent. Okay, so that's for me, feedback on a formation, on an ad, on a competencies that we use. But I feel that my job as a high-performance coach is to transform. That's my, if I cannot transform someone's identity, some of the belief they have, some of the values they have, some of the attitude, mindset, mental skills, then I don't think I'm a high-performance coach. I'm just a, a tennis coach, which will give tips on their tactics and technique, but not really help them to become a winner. So when it's time for me to transform, like pedag transformational pedagogy is all based on self-reflection. So it's hard to help them to self-reflect if you don't give them some leading questions for them to self-reflect on. So it's not just about guide discovery, about asking questions to lead them to a solution. Sometimes it's really self-reflection things. It's, it's only through awareness and a desire to change that you can change things. Yeah, I will do that, but I'm very aware when I work at that level, it's to transform a specific belief or a specific attitude, a specific mindset or a specific identity. And I think um, I like to intervene at this level. And I'm not always 100% sure that I will get it right. But for me, not uh, going this way and looking to transform people who have clear limitations, uh, it's not an option. I think it's very, very important. And it's interesting how you make a distinction as well between tennis coaching and high performance coaching. You, you do see that distinction there, right? Yeah, absolutely, yes. And yeah, some people coming, they, they were labeled like lazy all their life. And then I catch them doing something like with high intensity, good, and I praise them on that. And, and then, I, or I know it on purpose, I start with the task that I'm sure they can do to catch them doing something right. Let's say just six balls. And the objective is to do 50 balls, but I was catching. Yeah, I like the way you work. That's good effort. You beat the bounce six times and see your no run, whatever. And then after that, if I can succeed them to buy into that value of work ethic and all this and praise them on that, so I don't need to do 10, 10 and after a few months, you know, they can get the norms, which 
they weren't previously able to lazy to achieve or stuff like this. I think it's very important to catch them doing things right and have some labeling. So some people will say you should never label someone because it imprisoned them and stuff like this. But I, I prefer to give them strong label than themselves give themselves bad labels because they criticize themselves. Oh, you're so bad. You're such a choker. You're such this. Or a previous coach having labeled them like you're such a choker, which is a, a term to use, like you're not a winner. So I prefer to have the ability to change these labels to more powerful one that could lead them to do much better in tournaments. And in your experience, what is the difference between a player who is not improving over a period of time and a player who is having one bad day at the office? I remember once there was a, a tennis coach called Brad Gilbert. He wrote a, a book, Tennis uh, Winning Ugly. And he was saying like on 100 match, you'll play 10 match where you're zoning. You can beat almost anybody. No, you're just playing in the zone. You're going to play 10 match so ugly. You know, you're going to lose to anybody. And it's how you play your 80 other match when you're not zoning or you're not playing bad. It's like how you play the cards you have, you know, like that will make a difference. So the players know when he played like a real terrible match. It's not a real big problem. You just know plays very bad and we go over that quite quickly. We don't dramatize that. Uh, we, we can find a solution though. If it was because he went out uh, late the night before, if he, because he did a few things, we say, okay, let's learn what happened before. Okay, it doesn't seem to be very good for you. Or sometimes it was because they overtrain. They lack confidence. They feel they have to go. And you say, no, no, you don't need to. Just rest. You know, like the day before to unload. And they will go practice three, four hours high intensity because they feel they need to be ready. But they just burn themselves and they come in their flat the day after. So we have to still learn about what could have caused that. But, but then we take the learning and then we move on. The feeling of stalling, of not improving... It doesn't happen very much with the players I work with because on the performer side, you can always also catch them like, do you fight? You, you can praise them on something on the performer side. There's a lot of things you can praise. And on the player side, I chunk down the objective like uh, when you're serving, when you're returning, you know, when you're a server's partner at the net and the receiver's partner, when you're both up. I've chunked down with a lot of roles they have to play. And I can always find a role that they have played a tiny bit better in that match. You know, like, uh, gee, I really like the pressure you put as receiver's partner. The guy, uh, when he was coming in, was really, really trying tough shots. Or I really like the way you returned second serve. I really like the way you were doing this. I think there's always a part of their game that will that can improve it. It's really rare that I play someone where I coach someone that was not improving on everything. Every aspect, I, I, I don't think I ever experienced that. I think I repeat that for a third time. Catch them doing something right <laughs> and praise them. And uh, it's, it's, it's good for confidence as long as you're not lying, it's, as long as you're honest and things. And it doesn't mean like you're, that you don't see what's not really improving and all this, but you can state it in a way and the objective can be reachable. Sometimes uh, they're not improving, but you, you put the bar like so high that they feel they'll never get it. We can make the target just a tiny bit tougher. We can make the movement just a tiny bit more demanding. We can ask the pace of the ball just a tiny bit more. We can make the feeding to them just a bit tougher. 
and we can make the scoring just a bit tougher. Like uh, uh, John will do that drill until you, you get five. You get five, I applaud you, it took you 50 balls. Then uh, we'll do it until you have five on 10. That's with demanding. Then until you have five in a row, then stuff like this. So we can play with the score where you feel you're improving. So I can always break down the exercise where I can start to create a momentum toward you getting much better. And I like these type of progression. I like, I, I feel that success breeds success. And if I can always bring a task just a tiny bit tougher and you have it, then I can make it a tiny bit tougher. And after a while, after two, three months, you're so much better. But it was always through success after success. Instead of putting the goal like this, you jump, you miss, you jump, you miss, and you get discouraged, and then you feel you're not improving, that you're, and then you develop that hopelessness, oh, I will never make it. Uh, I, I make a real conscious effort that uh, it doesn't happen when I coach. And you say that success breeds success. I mean, it's, it's very true, of course, and you've experienced success at the Olympics, at the Davis Cup. So I'm curious to ask, how do you test your system and review your culture to ensure that they are still improving, they are still fit for purpose? How is your approach evolving with time? And what is the major inspiration for those changes? I was a big fan of Anthony Robbins and the constant and never-ending improvement, which I apply for me and I apply for the players too. One of my main saying, it was like, I want to beat randomness. I know like if you coach like 200 guys, maybe one will succeed but I, I wanted to uh, beat randomness. And I think my rate of success is about 90%. So it's not like I had 100 players and five succeed at high level. I think uh, if I touch 10 players, nine will achieve like uh, the international players. And uh, I want to learn all the time, me too. And the way I coach, I will ask you, John, in that situation, what would you like to do? And if you say uh, something, let's say at cross court, I say, can you tell me more what justified this or whatever? And suddenly you, you say something that makes so much more sense. And I say, glad I didn't talk first because I wanted you to hit down the line. And suddenly I learned from the players a lot. Yeah, that makes so much more sense. And then I say, perfect. I thought the same way. Little lie, sweet lie. <laughs> I don't say no. I thought, oh, I, I learned from you here. Sometimes I would say, yeah, I learned. But very often I play the game and say, yeah. Exactly, that's what I was thinking. So let's go and do it. And you would be surprised how much I learned from the players. And I learned a lot because I give coaches education. If I don't stay up to date with the most current trend and stuff like this, I will be cut in the, when I give the coaching education course by questions and people will see that I'm not up to date. So that forced me to stay up to date. I think being involved with the coaching education is, is great for me because I, yeah, I see the most common trend. I, I was on the ITF coaching commission for about 30 years. So I was on reading committee of the new stuff coming up. And I think I make always an effort. And, but even with all that, if the success was not happening, I would have to review what I'm doing because I did sometime try a new approach and the players were not getting any better. So bottom line, you know, like uh, the movie, show me the money. If you think of a new approach, it's still the players should show that some improvement. And sometimes I try a few things that was not working. So I always look at to see the result and the improvement of the players. And what's tricky sometimes is when they improve, like in practice, but it in matches. And, uh, and this is where I make a very, very clean cut between the performer and the tennis player. Because the tennis player can improve in practice, but if he doesn't transfer that into matches, it's because 
the trading in which you make the skill into game situation was not very, very well done. Or the performer stops that, the focus on the outcome or anxiety or whatever it is. My point is I want to beat randomness. I try to be as current as I can and always look to see if uh, what I work with the player, if it transforms into them performing better in matches. Now, I think you made some very interesting points there and I wanted to hone in on the coach education part of your answer. Do you think that coach education is something that tennis does well in general? And then the second part of that question, how has your work as a tennis coach, a high performance coach, in fact, influenced the content and delivery within the British system? And for those who wonder what type of accent I am, I'm French Canadian. So I come from Canada. And when I arrived, you know, like I say, inform, form and transform. I thought our coaching education was a bit too geared toward information. So there was a, week, a first regrouping, three days in a row in technique. So you vomit everything you know in technique and people like go out with a bad big like this. Let's go everything on that. Then after that, come three days, everything you know in tactics. Then two days on physical, two days on psychological, another regrouping to mix up everything together, a test and that's it. So I was feeling that they were mostly just informed, a lot of PowerPoint presentation. And I say, we have to form the coaches, not to inform them. So I changed five regroupings into 13 regroupings of three days. So I changed like three, six, like a 12 days into 39 days, which was a big jump. You know, I tripled the, the men. And every time they were coming, we would form them on a little bit of technique, tactics, physical, and psychology. Then they will go in their field, implement that with their players, show a, a video of the work they have done and what they have achieved with the self-reflection of what they have done. I will look at the video and then we will move the second regrouping to a little bit more on technical and foreign tactics. And we will always upgrade progressively the coaching with an implementation with their players. Because my job was, and I changed a word tutor, I said, I'm going to coach you to become our performance coaches. So as I saw myself as a coach, but I start to believe, behave like pretty much what I do when I coach a player, which means I assess the starting point, have a very good awareness of the norms of what it will be if they want to be at the top of the game, and I will look to bridge a gap. So I was doing the same thing with the coaches, start to identify their starting point, compare it to the norm of what I as what I should be a high performance coach and I may get it wrong or right but I have to do something with what I think is the norm and then looking to bridge a gap with them but they really felt like I was coaching them forming them and make them better from each regrouping so that for me forming and of course I tried a few things about transformation like change the way they they look at coaching because a lot of, a lot of coach would not go see their players at tournaments they, they think that they were coaching because they were drilling them during the week and uh, their junior would go play tournaments during the weekend, but they would not go see them. So I tried to transform to them to say, if you're, really, if you're really a coach, you know, I think it would be nice to watch them compete. I know it seems like uh, stupid, but it was not uh, really happening. But anyway, I didn't try to have high pretension about transforming the coaching culture, but I made a good pride about forming them to develop competencies and not just uh, informing them. So that was a big change. And I introduced the concept of performer at the same time and tennis players and tried to see that before when a child or junior or player was missing, it was always technique first. Now it's technique plus. So we look at the performer as easy focusing on the outcomes and then 
don't, don't correct the technique. It's a bad focus. And was he anxious or stressed or tentative? Then it's the emotion. Don't correct the technique. Was he tired? But then don't correct the technique. Was he trying a low percentage shot tactically and all this? Yeah, then, then don't correct the technique. So after you scan all the elements, head, heart, and legs, and tactics, then you can work with the technique. So that was a cultural transformation uh, about the coaching education that we do. I guess, Lou, I would like to wrap things up by asking you one final question, which is about the future, the next few years. What do you anticipate being the biggest developments in tennis doubles coaching, perhaps to be specific, in the next two to three years? If we talk about internationally, I think they will start to copy what we're doing in Great Britain. I have that uh, every match uh, that we do are tagged and with a very comprehensive tagging system database. And all this create on a PBI, which I don't know why it's 10. <laughs> I just know PBI. And all the stats are there. So we have, like, for example, Jay Murray or Joe Salisbury, who will have like 2,500 serve, serve everywhere. And how many, and when they touch a ball, a service partner, constancy point one as a server. We have so many stats on every aspect of that, which for maybe a sport like football and all this, well, we have uh, even more stats than that. But uh, in tennis, it was that uh, it was not that just percentage of first serving, and that's about it. But we in Great Britain we have a software to analyze doubles, and I think that will start to be spread out because they they try to see what are we doing, you know, so differently. And the, the British players start to play with uh, not start they are playing with foreigners and not always playing with each other. That's also interesting because. Uh, Let's say Neil Skupski right now is playing with someone from Holland, but I have to coach a guy from Holland. I present our coaching system. I present the video, their scouting reports that we have. And if he said, I would like to see how the guy makes second serve to me, I play on the blue side. I just tag that and you see his opponent serving on blue side second serve. So they will see that we do something that no other country is doing. And that will start to spread out to doubles coaching in a few years. And as for the, uh, the trends, about 10 years ago, everybody was serving and volleying on the men's side. And if you were not doing it, you would be criticized or you say you don't play proper doubles. Now, for the last 10 years, about each year, 5% to 10% more of the servers don't serve and volley. So now we have about 55% of the servers staying back on their serve. In the year 2019, it, that was not happening. Everybody was serving volley. And so that the, the game style are changing. And even remember seven years ago, my topic was with the doubles players, how do we beat these damn singles players staying back and walking their ground strokes like as hard as they can? Because that was a new thing happening. We never had to deal with that before. So the, the tactics seems to be changing. Some of the strength of the doubles team seems to be changing. Almost everybody know the eye formation, which before just few elites knew. So the game in itself are changing, is changing. And uh, I think there will be just better coaching, better uh, analysis, better scouting, better anticipation uh, being done. And, um, and just one word about anticipation, even if you didn't ask me. <laughs> Too often people don't work on anticipation because they think it's a gift. You have it or you don't which I completely disagree. And uh, for me, anticipation is to read technically or predict tactically 
or sense what the opponent will do or will not do. And if more play people will see that you can help an anticipation mindset of the player by saying what you don't do. So let's say John, I say, John never loves on the second shot, never loves. So then the net player will play closer. Or if I say, you never do this, you never do that, this is so helpful for a tennis player. And too often we thought anticipation was to know what you're going to do all the time. So, so coaches say, well, I don't know what you're going to do all the time. But uh, sometimes it could be useful to know what uh, you won't do. And uh, that also anticipation will will get uh, a bit better in the way we scout opponents. And there are a f- few things that will improve, but the, the sport always improve. What I try to do personally is to be ahead of their curve, you know, like trying to be the one who will be introducing new elements and to try to have people, uh, and if they catch up on that, try to introduce new elements, to try to stay uh, on top of the game as much as I can. Louis, thank you very much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.